Welcome to Mom Fashions, an honest discussion about the beauty and burden of motherhood. I'm Emily. And I'm Beth. And we hope these next few minutes encourage, inspire, and remind you that we are all in this together. This is Mom Fashions, a Fort Worth Moms production. Episode 72, What It's Like to Be a Mom in a Transracial Family. Hello, Mom Fashions listeners. This is Emily, and I'm again hanging out with my friend Beth. And we are almost kind of like silly, giddy, maybe a little embarrassed about how excited we are (laughs) to have our two guests with us today on Mom Fashions. Mm -hmm. Um, I am like so excited to announce, everybody get ready, that we have uh, Miss Sasha Suzuki Graham and Sarah Blanchard with us today. And they are from a fellow, they're fellow podcasters from Dear White Women, Let's Get Uncomfortable Talking About Racism. And these two ladies are also co-authors of a book by the same name, Dear White Women. Mm -hmm. Um, Sarah, she has also written another book called Flex Mom. And these best friends, which I just learned of 25 years, have kind of joined forces together to talk about issues of um, social justice and how that influences our lives as women and our lives as mothers. So I'll stop geeking out. I'll stop (laughs) going crazy and say welcome to the two of you. Thank you so much for having us. I'm really excited for this little Mom Fashions conversation because it's so near and dear to my heart. And I think the only thing I'd love to add is from my side, this is Sarah. I don't know if we want to keep introducing Mm -hmm. ourselves. Maybe you'll learn our voices through (laughs) this, but um, I am a life coach. I'm a trained life coach and I am fascinated by positive psychology and think people are endlessly fascinating. So a lot of my conversations in my work come at it from that perspective. And this is me, Sasha. I'm also super excited to be here. I think the only other thing I'd add to that introduction is I am a litigator by trade. I've had over 15 years experience practicing law in a variety of different ways. Um, I left private practice last year to really focus on the Dear White Women platform with Sarah. But, you know, what drove me originally to be interested in law is looking at whose voices weren't being heard and whose voices probably needed fighting for. And so that's what carried me into law. That's the questions I'm always asking around what we do. It's that critical thinking lens, I think, that I bring to our work, which tends to, I think we work together in that way to complement each other. Yeah, that's great. And you all met at Harvard, correct? Yes, we were undergrads. Long, long time ago. <laughs> we don't we don't have to do any math. It's okay. We'll skip yeah. that. <laughs> I actually had a tinge of kind of like feeling old whenever uh, me Sasha said that she's been a litigator for 15 years. Mm-hmm. If I told you how long I've been in publishing, I'm like well over the 20 year mark. And mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, I'm the old lady in the room. <laughs> Fantastic. You have the most most wisdom. All right, that's yeah. It. Most experience yeah. over here in the corner. Yeah. The wisdom. That's what I call these lines across my forehead. Oh, yeah. Really. Yes, that's the yes, wisdom. Right? Right here. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, so the reason uh, why we four are hanging out today is not only because we're like huge fans and totally geeked out, all that thing, is that interestingly, all four of us are moms in a transracial family. And so we wanted to kind of talk today about, 
you know, one, what does that mean? And we've had kind of an ongoing series where, where we do an episode like what it's like to be X, Y, Z. And so today we're looking at moms in transracial families. So how about we all just take a second and we explain why we define our own nuclear families as a transracial family. Sarah, you want to go first? Sure. Um, so I am interested in this conversation, especially because I think I'm probably the least air quote transracial of the bunch. <laughs> um, I bring the difference compared to the mainstream narrative in America. I, um, I'm biracial. My mom is Japanese. My dad was a white man and I married a white Canadian man. Mm -hmm. And our kids present as white. We have two girls, um, 13 and 10. And even though they present as white, I can really go into different cultural heritages, nationalities, um, my upbringing, my mother's Japanese heritage, uh, and the different values that come with all of those that I've really worked hard to instill in my children. Okay. What about you, Misasha? So I'm also biracial. I'm the daughter of a Japanese immigrant father and a white mother. Um, and I'm married to a black man. So my boys are black, Japanese, and white. I have two of them. They're nine and seven. Um, so even though they're very multiracial with um, very unique Japanese first names, the world really sees them as black, black boys, and soon to be black men. So that's our family makeup. And, you know, I'm sure our listeners have, have heard a lot about our families, Emily, we, maybe we a little too much. <laughs> but uh, just to share again, I am white, Scottish, but I married a man who is primarily Thai and Chinese, but also Latvian and Portuguese. So my kids then have not only just a just this incredible mix of different genes, honestly, but also, um, well, I say our family, but my husband's family is really, really big on celebrating all of their different places of origin, even if it doesn't necessarily genetically apply to them. So a lot of them came from Hawaii because of military work. And so even that plays into a part of who they are as a family and how they express their ethnicity. And so I always say that I kind of created a spectrum, uh, like you said, Sarah, that your children present as white. Mine primarily do too, but kind of in in greater variety as we get younger. So I've got three girls and and um, the youngest looks just like me. The others look like my husband's family. So we've got a Do you think sometimes but kind of because of where we live, do your children ever get mistaken as Hispanic? Uh, all the time. Yeah, my I husband, was going to say, they, all, they mm -hmm. would not, they would present in our area yeah. as Hispanic kids, yeah. your older one particularly. They, yeah, they really do. My husband especially, and, and that's something we can touch on later yeah. too, mm -hmm. but yeah. Well, as most of you know, I am a white woman. I am so white. My maiden name was white. Mm -hmm. I have very pale skin, so I'm pretty much the poster child of a white woman. And I am married to a Caucasian man, and we have two daughters that joined our family through adoption. And they are both black and absolutely present as black. Like there's no there's no biracial happening there. 
Um, and so, yeah, we very much are transracial and our um, differences are very apparent, mm-hmm. like very kind of out there and in your face. So a question that I had to kind of get us started on this is, why does it even matter for us maybe to identify as transracial or for us to be discussing and being open about being a mom in a transracial family? Because like family's family. So what would your answer be to why does it matter? I want to volunteer me Sasha's answer for this one because... That is my answer. I was like, where could I go with this? I mean... You always talk about when people say, I don't see color. Yes. Why is that not helpful. Yes. And and I think, you know, so let me start with a story. There have been a number of times that I have been asked if I'm my kid's nanny, you know, at the park, um, at various places. And I, I think that that comes from a perception that families look a certain way. Right. And, um, and besides the fact that even if I, I didn't know that about a family, I would never say that um, or ask that question. I, I think that there is an othering with that question, right? And it's not only an othering for me, but it's an othering for my kids who hear that, right? Because that assumption that this can't be what a family looks like, it, they hear it too. And I think that it, it that sort of like family is family is kind of like the statement that we probably all heard, right? That That I don't see color. My kids don't see color. Um, I was raised not to see color. And I think that does a real disservice overall, right? Because we we do see color. Our kids absolutely do see color. And moreover, when you say something like, I don't see color, or I'm telling my kids not to see color, my kids, my own kids, who have been taught to be very proud of who they are and the color that they are, that negates all of that, right? It negates their identity, their pride in themselves, so instead of saying I, I I don't see color or color blind, you know, we've heard different options, right? Color brave, color kind, but ways in which we can undo sort of that what our parents told us, believing that this was the way to go, right? Saying that I don't see color and really not only see color, right, but appreciate the the different colors that we are and understand that there is no one such no one narrative for what a family looks like um, Mm -hmm. for a whole host of reasons but in this in the racial transracial sense right it's it's that there may be many different colors in one family and that's that should be celebrated and I love that and I think it should be celebrated and the other part that I also want to add to that is if you were to ever be able to look at all of our faces right now you would think that we could potentially, depends on how you interpret me and Misasha's looks, but it's like a room full of whitish women, right? Mm-hmm. And because Misasha and I are biracial, we've been able to be in rooms where people don't see us as people of color. We are the only people who are not potentially the people that are just all white. And so we hear what's being said and what's not being said. And also what is being said when people don't think they're people of color in the room. Right. And so people make assumptions if like, would they, they wouldn't know what your families look like. I think we have to talk more about transracial families because it will keep people from making assumptions that each of you who look white must therefore be married to a a white person and have white looking children. Mm -hmm. Like those are harmful assumptions to make about people because you do wind up saying and and acting and, and thinking in a way that falls into really unhealthy traps in terms of uh, honoring each other's humanity. It's interesting to me, um, Misasu, that you said 
what you often bump into is you being asked if you are the nanny. And, you know, perhaps this is exposing my own biases, but in like that case, to me, it seems like you would be almost put in the more like derogatory sense of, oh, you're the help. Like you must be the help. But in my instances, like when I am with my kids alone, almost every person that I come in contact with assumes my kids are adopted. And almost a sense of, well, you don't look like the, I mean, this is totally honest. And but Oh, you don't look like the kind of woman who would have married a black man, right? Or would have kids with the black man. So these kids must be adopted. Do you bump into that as well? Or do you think this could be like a regional thing of how yeah, that's what a I was white thinking. and black children would be interpreted out and about? I don't think it's regional. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I, I think that I, being biracial, I look nebulously ethnic in some ways. And okay. I think people's reaction to that to not being able to put me in like a clear box mm-hmm. um, is to assume certain things. Okay. And um, so I've never been asked, actually, I've never been asked if my kids are adopted. It has only really? ever been that I am the nanny. There was a period of time when we actually had a nanny because I was working full time. And they there, there were individuals who asked our nanny if I was the, the backup nanny. Wow. Like the, that was the assumption. It was not the assumption that I could be Whoa. the mother. Do, um, do you think that that's the Asian side of things coming into it? And the reason I ask that is, do you remember during the pandemic, the BBC yes, news guy? 100%. Yes. I knew where you were going with this. Right? Yes. <laughs> and the kid wanders in yes. and, and mm-hmm. like the, the wife comes running in and grabbing the kid. But everyone's like, was that the nanny? And the assumption was the Asian woman was the nanny, right. not yes. the yeah. mom. Yes. Maybe. Yeah. And, and does yeah. that say more about our assumptions there? Yeah, because yeah. I have never one time, I've been a parent for 11 years, I have never had any person ask me if I was the nanny, mm-hmm. ever. Always, are my kids adopted? And then will be, there have been a handful of times where then I have endured them saying really negative things about Black mothers, you know, in front of my children. Anyways, sorry, yeah. got off on a tangent that because I find that pr- pretty interesting. Yeah. Okay, any other kind of answers to that question? Like, why does it matter to you that you identify your family as transracial? I personally, I want my children to know who they are and where they come from. And I want them to be able to like my husband's family already does celebrate each of those pieces mm-hmm. um, as something to be celebrated, you know, and they are, it's so interesting to hear your experiences, Sarah and me, Sasha, because my girls will have similar experiences. And I'm thankful that we are in an area that's very diverse and that within their schools, um, they are in no way, uh, you know, singular or stand out. But I know that they will come across that. And so I want them to be prepared for that in a way that is confident 
in this is who I am. And so that if they enter a meeting, you all shared actually before we started recording, but you shared about a meeting where you met and um, there was a, a question about what it means to be an Asian American person and that both of you walked out because of the question. I want my girls to feel that confidence and say, sorry, you're not going to put that on me, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's for me why I want to have these conversations. And because I was, I was not aware of these things growing up. I was not in diverse communities growing up and I don't want my, for lack of a better term, ignorance to affect my kids. That made me think of something, which is, you know, first of all, I get really psyched when my kids, I ask my kids this, like, what boxes do you check on the identity forms at school? And they both said Asian and white. And I did this little happy dance Mm -hmm. because to me, my mother being the immigrant who like through sheer force of will got me to learn Japanese, understand the Japanese traditions, like visit her family in Japan. You know, she made sure that I was clear where I came from, the cultures that I came from. And the fact that my kids still identify with that means that I did her proud. But I think one of the things that occurred to me when I was thinking about this conversation just now, as you were talking, was this idea that we all come from somewhere. Mm -hmm. And how far back can each of us trace our legacy and and why do so many white people forget that they came from somewhere too? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it goes back. What you said a few minutes ago is something that has been important to me as a transracial mother is always bumping into the narrative of you know, quote unquote, normal and regular, which Mm -hmm. often equals whatever the middle class white experience is, right? And how you were saying, like talking about a transracial family is not really that other. Like it's trying to have the conversation for us to realize that most of us are actually kind of in this situation Mm -hmm. and that for my kids to have like skin different from me um, to have like holidays and traditions and you know things that are different than maybe my own heritage that that's really what we kind of all are and that Mm -hmm. is the normal that is the regular not the other Mm -hmm. so it's it's has become more important to me not to assimilate into color blindness or cultural blindness, but to be more of an advocate for seeing and celebrating the differences of our face shapes, the differences of our hair textures and colors, the differences of our holidays. And, you know, that's something in my kids classrooms that we go like that I if I can put my voice to anything like I try to do that not just celebrating the differences in my own children but what are you know the other kids in the classroom yeah what you're saying the undercurrent is that you're willing to always learn that there is so much more out there outside of our like one out of 7.9 billion people on the planet's viewpoint Mm -hmm. 
there are so many other experiences that people have walking through this world and that you have the attitude of curiosity, mm-hmm. of humility, of growth. And I think those are all really good human characteristics to have because we all live together in interwoven communities. And I think some of that sort of is forced to come to the surface when you live in a transracial right. home. It's just how your family's DNA has to be because you it's very clear that people's experiences are different and unique. Yeah, and it's interesting that you that you brought up just that oftentimes, and for me, I'll speak of my own experience as a white woman, I've often just like erased where I came from. You know, it's always just been like, I knew stories of grandparents, great grandparents, whatever, but really not until the last few years did I start putting together that I have a a Scottish heritage and what that looks like and what that means and how even that plays out. And it is because I'm thinking more about my family and just the richness of backgrounds that we get to partake in, you know, and then wanting to understand my own is something that I hadn't ever thought about before. But I think you're right. It comes from that um, that stereotype of, you know, white, middle class, normalcy. Yeah, I would I would argue not like in I'm not saying like I'm arguing, you know what I mean? I would propose that that is a luxury we get as white women because as white little girls, we are told the American story. So our history is America. We are American. Other people have to have their own stories of Japanese heritage, Filipino heritage. Like these are others, right? These aren't quote unquote Americans. They need some sort of like adjective before the word American to describe who they are. So we don't have to like try to preserve another heritage or a culture because we're taught pretty on that we're just American. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That, that privilege. Like Thanksgiving, mm-hmm. to, you know, total myth. Mm-hmm. But that's that's your heritage yeah. right there. That's who you are. You're yeah. a pilgrim. Yeah. Anyways, that was a side point. Yeah. <laughs> but but isn't it interesting the language that you just noticed? It matters so mm-hmm. much in the same way that I think as moms. You can learn, like you you feel the bristle when it's like there's working moms, but have you ever heard the phrase working dads, right? Mm-hmm. Exactly, yeah. Like yeah. what is our cultural norm reflected through the languaging that we're using? And I think the, the hard part of what you just said is the reality that we're not taught any different. Like the schools do teach, you know, Black History Month, then there's Asian American Heritage yeah. Month, then yeah. there's like Native American, like all of these other months, their very existence shows that it's actually white America that is the default through the rest of the year, through every story, through you know the, the textbooks, through right. all of it. And everything else is this footnote. And until we work to shift that mm-hmm. and understand that we were made richer by all of our collective experiences, we need everybody listening to sort of in their in their world, in their small spirit to be like, huh, hold on, like, I want to just make sure I'm paying attention that I'm not defaulting to this being the norm, that my experience is the norm. You know, we have this podcast called Dear White Women, and I think we've gotten a fair amount of pushback on the use of the word white, actually, um, with people calling us racist. Um, but the question then, to your point, is what's the other word that we should be using? And I think that some people do believe it. 
it's America. It's synonymous yeah. with American, right? right? So I I love that you brought up that point because I think that we can't say that enough um, right now mm-hmm. for sure. Okay, so here's here is my next question. Like all four of us have kids who present differently and have a different family makeup and, and heritage. So I want to know, what do you do to protect, explore, advocate, however you want to phrase it, for your children who are a part of different communities and heritages and traditions? Like if it's important for us to talk about, then what are you doing in your own homes to kind of protect that? educate others, advocate for them? Yeah. I mean, in my case, we definitely do the major Japanese holidays. New Year's is is big. We have some traditions around that. Um, there's Japanese Girls Day. So every year until they just recently sort of outgrew it on March 3rd, they would dress up in kimonos and we would celebrate them. We have these dolls that are beautiful that we would display in our home. Um, and, and I've taken them back to my mom wanted to make sure that her family got to meet her grandchildren. So we've taken them back to Japan and they see through their very own eyes that America is not the only like place in the yeah. world, right? That they it's not the only place that that people look a certain way. Or mm-hmm. And so that side of it from the Japanese heritage has been big, but I think also Canadian, I mean, it's a different nationality and we celebrate Canadian Thanksgiving. We talk about Canadian Independence Day. We um, talk about the different healthcare systems and the different yeah. ways that people approach community and neighbors and safety nets. And, and I think through all of that, some of the biggest questions have been like, okay, what's another explanation for it? Like around our dinner table, you know, kids come home and they're like, so-and-so is really smelly at school. Like I, you know, blah, blah, blah. They're, they're whatever. I'm like, well, what's another, instead of thinking that they're gross, what is another explanation for what might be going on? Can you just give me a few other things so that you can break open this instant judgment and realize just like you know through your your own family that there's Japanese heritage, Canadian heritage, like all of these things that there might be another explanation that might give you a little bit more empathy for this person and their position and what could you do differently? So for, for us, it's all of those celebrations and exposure and conversations around thinking and noticing. So I, I think for us, you know, I mentioned my, I gave my boys Japanese names um, because I felt that that was very important um, that they have that, they carry that part of their identity with them very visibly. Um, and um, unfortunately they're very hard to pronounce or they're very unique Japanese names. They're not hard to pronounce, but um, it means they have a lot of questions that come up about their identity and names right from the start. But to to support that, I mean, we have, I have purposely made sure that they have, they learn Japanese, they've gone back to Japan, they understand that part of their culture. And, you know, from Black American culture, we go back to see my husband's family as often as we can in Louisiana, because that is a very different culture than the Bay Area here, where they are one of the few Black children in our communities. And we are one of the very few, even Black families in the community. Um, And I think on, on that front, I just, I want to do everything I can to support them and have them feel as strong and as good about who they are um, in our house, because once they walk out of our house, they're out of my hands, right? They're in, they're in everyone else's hands. And, you know, I talk about 
how one of my biggest fears is that they'll leave our house and not come back, right, one mm -hmm. day because of the color of their skin, which is a devastating fear for a parent, right? Because you, your primary goal, I think, is to keep your kids safe. And I want to be a realist about this, but at the same time, I'm their mother, right? I, I want to give them what they need to succeed in a world that is still largely stacked against their, their success. So we do... We do a lot of identity discussion. We do a lot of race discussion. We have a lot of uncomfortable conversations at home, but I want to show them just how special and loved they are so that they can take that with them into the world when the world is going to tell them that they're not. Mm -hmm. Beth, what about you? Honestly, a lot of our celebration revolves around the foods that we eat. And that is simply because my husband's family shows love by feeding people. And so my girls from, you know, the moment that they could have solid foods have just had the opportunity to, to have all of the different, because my husband comes from such an eclectic background, it's kind of endless, like what we can, you know, what we can try and celebrate. And so that is a big part of it. We, we chose my daughter's uh, my middle daughter's name is actually Hawaiian. My husband was born there. All of his family was born there. Just kind of as a nod to that part of who his family is. She has a lot of questions, a lot of mispronunciations and things like that. But it was important to us that that was part of, of who she was. And then a lot of it is honestly things that I'm still learning yeah. if I'm being honest, you know, is how can how can we celebrate these things? And I have a daughter who is 10. And so we're entering into, you know, the whole lovely puberty, middle school, you know, a hot mess. That I, it mom is solidarity right here. Yeah. Okay. I feel you. <laughs> yeah, it is. God, hear our prayers, yeah. please. <laughs> so but I'm loving being able to pull up Chrissy Teigen and my daughter's really into cooking and show her this Thai woman that she looks similar to that's doing this thing that she loves and you know and watching Chrissy Teigen go through um, she went through some weight changes after having children and she was outspoken about that and so as we talk about body image bringing in images of women who look like my daughter, you know, and, and we've talked about this before, but finding art that I can put in my home that represents beauty that looks like them, you know, mm -hmm. so they can see that and be like, wow, that's beautiful. Oh, wait, I look like that person, you know, so things like that. And but it's a learning process for sure. Yeah. yeah. What I like that you that means you notice, which sometimes we hear a lot of white families haven't noticed that. Mm -hmm the media images that are out there are still a very narrow type of white woman. If you're talk, talking yeah. about women, right. Yeah. Yes. And representation for sure matters. That's why films yes. like black Panther and turning red and, mm -hmm. you know, fancy rich Asians, like there's so many films like that, that, that people have thoughts about, but are so important because they're finally representing a much more accurate picture of humanity outside of white America. Right. Yes. But that's so until this point, just been this default. Yes. Yeah. Well, and giving them a way to connect to these mm -hmm. stories that they haven't. Turning red is 
like on repeat in my house the last few months because my girls can look at like the Chinese culture in it and say, oh, we've done that. We know about that. We have this. We, you know, Mm -hmm. and the way that they've connected with that movie is different than they have maybe, you know, Tangled. Yeah. Or, oh, um, I cannot tell you how many times my kids have had this very organic, honest, sudden response of, oh, she looks like me. Yeah. Or, oh, you know, she, my youngest just did a report on Raven Wilkinson, mm-hmm. who was the first full-time African-American uh, ballet dancer with the New York City Opera. It made an impression on her because it was a brown-skinned ballerina. Mm -hmm. And those are few and far between, at least that get very public, um, almost like commercialized representation. Um, For me, I mean, I will agree with all the things that you've said about the stuff that you do in the home. You know, and Beth and I have talked a lot about we have art we have toys, we books, movies, like we try to fill our home with a true reflection of what the world looks like, not only things that look like my kids or that look like us. Um, But I am very passionate about also bringing that into the classroom, you know. So at the beginning of every year, I ask the teacher, does she have the skin tone construction paper? Does she have the skin tone crayons or color pencils? I mean, even like in the middle school, like you may not be giving them crayons, but you can get the color pencil packs. Like all those things are available now. I provide the nurses, I provide the, even the teachers with different skin color band-aids, like all of those little things that go to normalize that the real, actual, regular world has a variety of people. They're all of the same value. Their experiences are all of the same value. And to me, like, that is the work that I do in an everyday life to try to normalize that families can look a variety of way, that people can look a variety of way, and there's no difference in their value because of it. I mean, you'll often find me at kids' birthday parties, even like my own very white family. I have great nieces and nephews now. Uh you get a black baby doll from Aunt Emily for your second birthday. You know, like it's in, we go to a friend, Caucasian little girl. Well, she might get a black Barbie. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? Like it's like, I am on a mission, like (laughs) through the things that kids use in everyday life Mm -hmm. to um, show that there is an experience that is different, but just as valuable as what, you know, what we consider that in our culture, that regular white American experience. Mm -hmm. Heavy air quotes there. Mm -hmm. Heavy, (laughs) like, like all, like pushing my fingers as hard as I can with air quotes there. Project them through the microphone. Yeah. And (laughs) what you were saying is something that every single one of us can do, right? I think that's where people think, oh, I'm going to change the conversation on race and racism. I am not a protester. I can't go do that. Or Mm -hmm. I... I live in a white community. I don't know how to do that, right? And and people sort of think they have to make these grand gestures in order to make change right. when they could 
like you said, go to the school and provide different books for the library. You could, mm -hmm. when you're going to buy the housewarming gift for somebody, buy something from a black woman owned business. Like yes, just those small things that you're already doing. If you just change your intentionality around it, mm -hmm. you can absolutely start ripple effects of change. Yeah. Well, and I, I love that you're talking to the teacher right at the start of the year um, and asking like what they have and what they, what they don't have, right? And because I, I, I wish all parents would do that, right? To, to find out what's being taught, you know, too. Like, yes. what is the school actually doing something for Black History Month, and how are they mm -hmm. talking about it? And is it just those twenty-eight days, or are we going to talk about mm -hmm. Black American contributions throughout the year? And same for Asians and women, and so many other groups that I think we've been largely okay with how things have always been, right? And so yeah. when we start asking why, which is such an important question for for parents in particular to ask mm -hmm. um we can make those changes which you know to all of your points it doesn't take a lot of of time or effort really but that impact that you're having on future generations and on our kids is is immeasurable yeah and, and because we are transracial moms this is more in our face than it is for um you know, moms who may be in a family unit where, you know, you're all the same heritage, all the same color, et cetera. But it's not like we have the unique perspective of seeing things from different angles because our husbands have different perspectives, right? Um, like our kiddos have different perspectives. But I want to say to the non-transracial moms that it's not just like, it's not just my job as a mother of black kids to bring the band-aids, you know, like Misashi was saying, like, this is something everyone can do. And to chime in on that, you know, Mike told you at the beginning, my kids present as white. So, you know, there was an instance where one of my kiddos went to a boba tea place with her middle school, new middle school friend. And the friend was like, I love this place. It's so amazing. And quietly leaned over to my daughter and was like, except everyone in here is Asian. Oh my gosh. And my daughter was like, like, you know, and, and used some of these techniques that we talk about that any single one of us can do, which is interrupt the conversation and be like, what do you mean by that? and was able to lead this conversation that when this person said, well, it's just all of one race, that's just weird. And then my daughter thinking critically was like, well, but we went to Charlotte Russe and there was all white people there and you didn't think anything. She's like, well, that's normal. And then exactly, was able to say, yeah. but I'm, I'm on, on behalf of my mom and my grandmother, like, you know, I'm Asian. Right. And, and this, this girl was like, Oh, if I'd known that I wouldn't have said anything. And she's like, that's even worse. Like I'd right. rather you mm -hmm. say this stuff and be in conversation, but it taught my daughter also a, I was really proud of her for using her voice and interrupting, but B I thought it was a great opportunity for me to tell her, not everybody grows up in a family that has always had these conversations for as long as you can imagine. Right. right? And if you haven't, at, at the very base level of making sure your kids are good, upstanding citizens, like we need to make sure, for example, that every single kid, every single white kid has been told never to use the N-word. You know, you yes. have to explicitly teach your kids that because by the time my daughter was in third grade, she came home and was like, mom, so-and-so was called the N-word. We'd already had that conversation. And she was able to go and, and help the student and help her friend. But do you want your kid to be the one? Who first says that to one of their peers? Probably not. I think that if you want your kid to be able to have robust, 
in-depth conversations with people who don't look like them, if your kids present as white, you want them to know that maybe their black friends might be a little more cautious behind the wheel when they're all driving and a Mm -hmm. cop shows up and please behave in a way that will not egg your friend on. Like, I think all of these skills, understanding the dynamics of what racial tensions are like in our country right now, because they are getting worse, right? If you want your kid to be a good friend, this conversation is just as much your responsibility as it is for any of ours with transracial or or multiracial families. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. I want to interject one thing here. We have uh, one more question before we wrap up, but um, I feel compelled to say this. Um, In this group of four women, I am different in the sense that I did not birth my children. And so my own heritage and the heritage of my husband um, is like really different from maybe the cultural and um, like heritage lessons that my kids would have gotten if they stayed in their birth families. And it's really important, I think, to say that if your family is transracial because of adoption or through some type of blending of families um, in, in that way, is that it's very important to research and study and listen and ask questions and pursue parts of your child's heritage and culture, the history, I mean, like the good hard facts history as well, understanding that because that is very much part of their identity. I have encountered many women who feel afraid of that. Um, They feel afraid, honestly, to ask the questions. Um, But through asking the questions, it's the only way that you're really going to learn, that you're going to know. And um, there's also no shame and no embarrassment to also teach your children your own cultures. Like, even though that might not have been um, their experience if they had grown up in their, you know, family of origin. You know, like we celebrate, December is a very active month for us. We celebrate Kwanzaa. We celebrate uh, Christmas and other like Christian holidays. Um, we, you know, talk a lot about what community that we are a part of, like what community um, that is special to our kids. Like we try to bring all of those things together. But sometimes, I mean, ignorance is a barrier that we have kind of between each other. But a lot of times it's just fear that we're scared to talk about the differences. We're scared to talk to other moms about it. We're scared to talk to the teacher about it. Um, Like we feel afraid to have frank conversations. Um, But like you're saying, you know, you, it's even worse if she's like, oh, if I'd have known you're Asian, I, I wouldn't have said that. Well, that's even worse. Like, I would much rather us have a conversation and I say something just dumb and I learn from it. I learn from you, which has happened a million times in my life. Like that is so much better to take that risk than it is to almost like to be quiet, but when we're quiet, we sort of create and fill in the blanks ourselves. Um, so I just kind of wanted to like, from the adoptive mom perspective, kind of throw that out there. Yeah. Well, I think that's why we 
are so excited to have Sarah and me, Sasha, on is because, you know, even in the title of your podcast and your book, it's about getting uncomfortable and having those uncomfortable conversations, which I think is why a lot of people steer clear because they don't want to be uncomfortable, but they're important. Except as moms, don't we always have uncomfortable conversations with our All kids? The like, time. I mean, we were just talking about puberty. We're going to talk yes. about sex ed. We talk yes. about like drink enough water, get some exercise. Like mm-hmm. we're always having uncomfortable conversations with our children. So this, we are capable of doing it. This should be an important part of their, your children's identity and your family identity that you also discuss. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Mm-hmm. Okay. Last question. Here we go. What is one piece of advice you would give to another transracial mom? I feel like it's a repeat of what you just said for me. It's it's that 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 it's the attitude of curiosity and humility of like I'm just I want to learn. Can you teach me the things? Can I can I do the research on Google myself? Right? Can I um, can I keep learning so that and and asking the questions about what is most important to you about that? And so. Because I think transracial families, as we just see from from this group of four of us, they can all look so different. I think that as moms, right, as I was mentioning earlier, we want to keep our kids safe. And I think in order to do that, um, we're going to be, we need to be our kids' biggest advocate, right? So, and that comes in many different ways. I think it, it comes at times from for example, schools where there might be stereotypes about how kids show up. And 100%, I will back my kid every time. We might have a private conversation <laughs> right. about how things yeah. are going down. But in in as it pertains to everyone else, I am 100% my kid's advocate. And I think that's what transracial moms need to be. I think that's who they need to be because I think – There's going to be a whole lot of people out there saying otherwise, and there's going to be a whole lot of people, maybe even in your own family, saying otherwise. And so that is everything I know. I know moms can do that, right? We can do hard things. We, In fact, we do hard things all day long, and we do five of them at the same time. And I think that this might be the hardest, but the most important thing that we can do for our kids is to be 100% their advocate. And that involves learning and that involves challenging a lot of beliefs we may have held about authority and perfection and what is right and how we should show up. But in the end, if we're showing up for our kids 100% of the time, I think that that is how we keep them as safe as we can keep them. Yeah, you can right. just erase my response because that was no, that, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that was amazing. <laughs> Thank you. No, we're using all of it. Thank you very much. Yes. Beth, do you have a tip? <laughs> I I think I would um just kind of expand on Sarah what you were saying about curiosity, being teachable, being humble, and and understanding that each of us has children that look very different from us. Right. And so understanding that their experience in the world isn't going to mirror what mine was. Mm, that's a good growing point. up. You know, their their understanding of the way that they're seen and understood and and that it's going to differ from what mine was, you know. And so trying to be sensitive to those things where 
for me, when I'm at the grocery store and somebody comes up and says, oh, your daughters are so beautiful. Who do they look like? You know, it, it's I'm always like, well, excuse me, <laughs> you know, but get your but milk also, lady and go. <laughs> yes. But being sensitive to what message is that sending to them? And Misasha, I like that you talked about the you know, when you um, are mistaken for your own kid's nanny, that it puts this otherness not just on you, but on them. Being sensitive and aware of those things so that I can have those conversations, even if they aren't necessarily right in front of me because of my own experience in the world. I mean, that's definitely been like a learning curve for me of having Mm -hmm. a frame of reference. I'm not a black woman. I didn't grow Mm -hmm. up a black woman. Yeah. And, you know, I can, I could list off, I mean, I could go and go and go to tell you the differences of my oldest daughter in particular, her experience through elementary school and my experience through elementary school. There are some major differences, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. I won't get into that, but (laughs) my tip would be um, if you were a transracial mom to know that you are not alone. You are not the only transracial mom. Even if you find yourself in a community, uh, in a neighborhood, on a street, at a school, where you feel like you may be the only X, Y, Z. I would encourage you, of course, we should have mom friends of all ages, stages, sizes, sorts, all kinds. But it is a worthwhile endeavor to try to find other moms who are transracial too. And they don't have to be the exact family makeup as you. Heck, they may even live in California or Colorado, (laughs) um, other places. And, you know, try to find like a a community where you can have some solidarity there. You can have frank conversations. You can um, just have that community that someone else kind of gets what your version of motherhood looks Mm -hmm. like. So thank you, ladies, so much uh, for chatting with us today. In our show notes, we will have links to your Dear White Women podcast and your book, um, Sarah's other book, Flex Mom, and some other resources that we have from Fort Worth Moms on this topic. So Sarah, Misasha, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. We really, really appreciate you having us on. As always, visit fwmoms.com to see the notes from this show, including links to products and content mentioned in this episode. And one more time, just in case you missed it, fwmoms.com. Fort Worth Moms.